Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome, everyone, to another edition of a live recording of Screen Talk. I'm Eric Cohn, the executive editor and chief critic, joined, as always, by Ann Thompson, our editor-at-large. And it's great to be back here, and I feel like we really missed something without that audience. I mean, we know they're there sort of in the future when we record, but when we do it in this context, it kind of feels like we're all in this together, which, you know, these days is a pretty important feeling to hold on to. So um, the other reason why I've been enjoying doing these podcasts with the video context is that uh, you get to travel around the world. So now you're at Can. Last time, I think you were like hovering in the Mediterranean somewhere near the... Uh, American Pavilion or something. Now you're somewhere else on the quasad, I think. You're around a lot. <laughs> I miss Cannes. I know there are a lot of other important things going on in the world, but we would be there right now, wandering around, uh, getting drunk or something else. We did this uh, La Pizza, pizza um, get-together, Zoom hang, with about 22 people. Uh, every Tuesday night before the festival would begin, people would assemble at uh, La Pizza, and it was really fun. But there yeah. are an awful lot of stories about people getting drunk, I have to say. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, we had about two dozen people gathered to, to talk things through, and, and, and you had the, the smart idea to ask people to share their favorite memories, which was fascinating because it's like this really interesting blend of absurdity and... Uh, sincerity, you know, people develop a real bond with the experience of going to this festival and basically living in movie mode for 10 days. But I will say that we're going to try to set a lot of that aside because we've we spent a lot of time sort of commiserating about not going to Cannes. We miss not going to Cannes. We take it very seriously that it's been a, a big part of our lives. But looking at the way that people react to it, I do also take into consideration uh, why some people might find this sort of grading or privilege. In fact, one longtime listener whose name I won't cite, but someone we both know quite well wrote to me and, and said that all of this can nostalgia talk is very narcissistic and off-putting. And it's not just nostalgia, it's also this elitist kind of I'm with the in crowd kind of thing. Now, I would say some elitism is better than others. You know, this it's not like this is just pure nepotism. We worked our way into being, you know, sort of on the front lines of, of what we consider to be an important part of film culture. But there is a fair point to be made here, which is that we can't spend all of our time just bemoaning what's not here. We have to look at what, what happens now. You know, we cannot just assume that, you know, everything's going to come back to normal. But at the same time, we need a, we need a new normal. So... Well, I, if you look at the story that I loved reading, by the way, that Manola Dargis and, and Tony Scott put together uh, in the New York Times, it was lovely to remember how some of the great filmmakers of our time, you know, got their start or were supported or, or were um, encouraged. And so part of what we're bemoaning isn't just our, our own experience or, or lack of a good time on the Riviera, but, but the fact that this is a very important change 
in uh, what happens in any given career over the course of time and, and how new filmmakers, it's the same thing as, as what's going to happen to the kids who graduate from college and there are no jobs for them. Um, and we happen to work in the film industry. <laughs> we happen exactly to be part of this world. That's an analogy right there. It isn't sort of like a, these, these movies that had such a specific kind of ecosystem that they relied on. It's like a given. That's it's, it. It's a fragile ecosystem and it always has been. More fragile than it's ever been. Yeah. And this was exactly the kind of disruptive force that you, you really couldn't plan for. But the question is what happens next? I mean, the idea of can kind of coming along and branding some films, making an announcement at some point in June, these are the films we picked, you know, that's not replacing the Cannes Film Festival, but I do think that it's a compelling idea for how to move forward, which is to say, we, we made some curatorial choices and we're gonna use those curatorial choices to advocate for these films as they continue to travel around, look for audiences. And I think that different kinds of programmers with different levels of influence may want to look at that as an important way forward. How can you use your uh, awareness of what's out there, what's good, what's not good, what's worth paying attention to, to advocate for these films in whatever the new kind of normal looks like? Maybe that's right. all right, like that. um, well, maybe not. It was interesting on the call, there were, there were some people talking about world premieres, you know? And, and I think that the whole concept of these film festivals competing for world premieres is sort of gonna go away in this, in this situation. And I think there's gonna be more cooperation and more of a sense as Terry Frumo said in a great interview that he did in screen, the idea that, that we're going to be helping the filmmakers, what can we do to help them and um, I think all the film festivals are going to get together in whatever form they take to try and achieve that. Yeah, and the premiere status thing always struck me as sort of confusing anyway, because if you're so focused on premieres and you don't have the, um, the ability to offer something really valuable on a grand platform, then it becomes really hard to play that game and you can wind up with not great movies. So moving beyond that and focusing on curatori curatorial insight and quality above all else. I mean, that's, you know, maybe we do need some sort of better integrated network between these festivals, but they should be working together to push forward that value above all else because they're not gonna look like what they look like after all this stuff. I really think that's what's going on, judging from what various film festival programmers have told me. They, they are all chatting, checking in with each other every day and supporting each other and right. sharing yeah. best practices. And, and I think that's what's gonna happen going forward. So in other news, we've been seeing increasing uh, interest in what new movie going paradigms are going to look like and uh, more updates in terms of when we might see attempts to release movies into theaters. So one of the more interesting stories this past week was that uh, while we've been talking about Tenet and July 17th and, and Christopher Nolan's attempts to be the historic savior of, of the exhibition world, here comes this little Russell Crowe movie, Unhinged, which is coming out at the beginning of July. So that it's going to have bragging rights if they pull it off. If they pull it off. I mean, there's a lot that can change between now and then, but I, I am amused by Mark Gill. Mark Gill is, is yeah. running this uh, company called Solstice Studios, and I love the idea that they're calling themselves a, a studio, right? Um, but anyway... They are producing financing, and this is the first film that they have that they're releasing. And I think it's really um, a question of desperation and opportunism, finally, that they couldn't really find a place to go inside yeah. the, uh, 
Yeah, I mean, maybe we can open the blowers are outside. No, they couldn't find a place to 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 go in fall, winter, spring, yeah. and so they're taking uh, a a light summer schedule and jumping ahead of it and hoping that they can collect some money. I, I think it's a great big gamble, and it could go either way. It could go either way, but but as as you've already put it in, in some of your reporting on this, it it has less to lose than something like Tenet, and so there's room for experimentation and it, a lot of people will probably be watching an experiment like this. Mark Gale is no newcomer to the game. And I remember he years ago, he gave this keynote that a lot of people were talking about where he said the sky was falling for independent film, which was both this very astute uh, argument, but also kind of alarmist in a way that got people talking. And you can feel some of that here. It's like, what can we do that'll get people talking? Oh, we, we have a movie that we can just, check in the theaters and, and see what happens. And if it sinks or if it's seen as a huge health, health hazard, well, you know, no harm, no foul. I mean, I haven't seen the movie. I don't even know if it's any good. So there's that question. It's got a good trailer. It's got Russell Crowe, uh, you know, road rage. Uh, <laughs> it's, it actually just looks terrifying. It's, it's the last thing I would go out to see. <laughs> well, that's, I mean, that's, again, I mean, we talked about this with Tenet too. It's like these movies still have to be, good or at least have something to offer to justify the context in which we're talking about them taking on a tremendous risk that at this point most people I think would say is not practical. I mean July is really soon folks. We are in the summer season, you know. That this is not some sort of distant thing where, you know, there's going to be some radical change to society. It will be something of a risk. It's really interesting that he's trying to take advantage of the July 4th weekend. Like it used to be this huge thing. That was like prime time when you would make the most possible right. money. Yeah, you don't <laughs> want to compete He's going to be out there all by himself. I highly doubt that Purge 5 for the forever purge is going to make it into uh, the July 10th slot. I mean, so. the purge movies have always been able to grab hold of the zeitgeist. And it does sometimes feel like we're in a bit of a purge situation here anyway. So... You know, if there if there was a real movie of the moment, maybe it is a purge film. Although, you know, Hope Springs Eternal for this tenant situation. I'm also kind of fascinated about how the climb is still on the schedule for July 17th. Sony Pictures Classics movie. You know, this great comedy. We're, we're both big fans of it. It's sort of pushing it back and back and back and back. I yeah, those guys. Those, no one has done more publicity for any movie than those two guys have done for the climb since well, it debuted in Cannes. I mean, of all the movies that they could be pushing, <laughs> this, this uh, quirky long take buddy comedy that you know is like more like crack. That to me actually could do really well. It's a it's a very funny movie. It's, it's, it's just really, what it's the a, doctor it's ordered. Yeah, it's a blast and it's a good word of mouth kind of a thing. It's also, it's really tapped into the biker community. And so for all this talk of um, drive-in movie theaters, I'm really interested in that side of things because you think about it. Uh, so so drive-in movie theaters are, are gaining all this attention now that it seems like a safer kind of way to do things. Well, if you can get the bikers to, you know, come to some sort of outdoor screening, because it's summertime and they want to bike around, you could create a life for this movie that would have been impossible in other circumstances. I don't know if Tenet even has that, you know, that kind well, of Well, speaking of, of drive-ins, I, I, I just keep waiting for Alamo or somebody to make the announcement of how they're going all in on outdoor um, options for movies. I mean, if you read the literature on 
how to avoid getting this virus. It has to do with staying outside and not going into inside spaces where air is circulating. You know, it, it just seems very obvious to me that, you know, all the polls show people being really scared of going inside right it's now. It's happening. It's definitely happening. Tribeca's got, um, you know, a big plan for its drive-in movie theater summer um, I think the, the question now is what programming is going to look like and how it's marketed and all these kinds of things. Because remember, drive-in movie theaters have been around consistently, but they haven't been in a situation like this where all of a sudden everybody wants to go to them. So there, there's definitely some backroom conversations going on between the owners of these spaces and the other folks who are, are really eager to get out there and experiment with them. In New York State and New Jersey, They've said that while movie theaters are in a category four small business, so uh, category four means late in the day. Yeah, yeah. you're not going to open. New York it. could be a market that does not come online in time right. for tenant, which could but be a factor on whether Warner Brothers decides to go forward with it or and not. And they're still fighting Chicago that. also. Right. So theaters really want to get into category three, but drive-in theaters, they don't fall into that. Driving movie theaters basically in New York and New Jersey have been told, in my understanding, is that the cars have to be eight feet apart with the, uh, with, and they can have their windows down or six feet apart, and then the windows have to stay up. There's no cap in terms of the number of cars you can have, number of people, all that kind of stuff. So there's a tremendous amount of potential there. We have something like 340 driving theaters in the country and like 34 in New York State. And that's, you know, if, if New York City is a major market and New York State has a huge amount of drive-in movie theaters, you would think, ergo, there's a real possibility to, to sort of mobilize folks. And I'm sure Rooftop Films and other organizations like that are also working really hard to, to have a piece of that pie. But I think that's really exciting because, that, you know, the, the opportunity to innovate is, is, is just tremendous there. I was listening to this panel about um, a bunch of different movie theaters and vendors talking about how they were going to try to come back and they're, they're going to have virtual uh, everything. All the ticket buying is virtual. Um, you, you know, they're reducing any kind of contact that you would have with anybody inside the theater. Um, you pick up your, your concessions. You know, they're actually going to do dining where you order ahead of time and they serve it to you. It's, it's going to be interesting to see if it works. I, I, there's even problems with uh, the food chain in terms of uh, suppliers being able to deliver, you know, hamburger and stuff like that. It's the, you can't even imagine some of the problems that these people are dealing with. I, I have my, my hats off to them. But yeah, I mean, again, it's all about that process of looking for whatever the new paradigm could look like. There was a great story about this restaurant in DC that has to reopen the limited capacity. So they're going to put mannequins at tables to help the place feel more crowded. You know, <laughs> like, just be creative and think outside the box because the reality is the reality. Like you can't change certain factors. But you can look at these, you know, instead of trying to go back to whatever happened before and replacing that, think about what are the new opportunities here and the new revenue streams and that kind of a thing. I mean, I, you know, I, I said before, I've, as a proud owner of a car in recent time, I'm, I'm really excited to see what going to a drive-in movie theater feels like at a moment of transition when it could be the most reliable way to see a movie in some sort of a group setting. Now, it's not replacing the movie going experience inside that kind of romanticism of um, you know uh, being with strangers and hearing the laughter and all that kind of stuff but there is probably still something about the collective experience and and not just the collective experience but also the um, 
this this um, the 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 nature of 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 the impulse to leave the house to to see something and have a cultural experience that's not in your immediate surroundings is something that I think it's almost like primitive, right? Like it's like the gladiator stadiums or whatever. Like we we still I think almost instinctively want that to happen, and that's to me what what drive-in movie theaters really represent. But um, I also am curious, Anne, what you make of what the next year is going to look like because while what we're talking about is how the next few months could unfold more and more i've been hearing people not just people in the industry but people who are just super curious about what the industry might be going through as consumers is you know we all know that film productions have shut down pretty much unless you're say if you're in china or something to that effect and so are we going to see fewer movies in 2021 and fewer shows and in that dearth of content, how do, how do people sort of counteract that? It's a really interesting challenge. And I think people are going to have to ramp up production pretty quickly if they want to fill that void. Well, they're talking about whether or not James Cameron's Avatar series is actually going to come back and, and make its release date after it's been delayed so many times. And apparently New Zealand is opening up and, and he's planning to go back there and finish up what he needed to finish and, and get Avatar done on time. Um, uh, you know, they showed some pictures of, of uh, the folks in the tank and everything, <laughs> you know. But, so the marketing is beginning. Uh, I think there's going to be a big um, uh, backlog of product that's going to move into 2021. That's part of what Unhinged was trying to get away from. There isn't that much product. Um, uh, there's too much product for 2021. It's all gone back to 2021. So that we aren't going to notice it in movie theaters for a while, um, but there will be a shortage of product uh, later on. Product. I'm not using that word. Films. Well, yeah. Films. Movie. Don't say content. At least. <laughs> <laughs> the word. So, so I don't want to talk business talk, but um, uh, the television people are going to be hurting too. It's, it's going to be a, a real uh, problem and it's fascinating. I'm curious to see what Steven Soderbergh comes up with in terms of best practices. Um, there's some uh, guidelines that have come out of the UK. Um, it's going to be very expensive. Um, and how are productions going to go forward with no um, insurance? Now, Netflix insures and bonds their own movies they've been doing this all along because uh, right. they're so rich they can afford to do it but um and so they're going to go forward but they're going to be a lot of indie prods that can't that that can't afford to take the risk of if they can't be bonded in some way the other thing i was thinking about is that we may see an intensification of the different kinds of resources that different countries offer to productions you know that france for example they have actual laws about film production and, and final cut and, and all this kind of stuff that we don't really have in the same way and, and that they value cinema. And I wonder if you'll see not just in France, but in many different countries where the governments actually support the arts in a way that ours doesn't, you might see this infusion of cash to get production going in a way that we may or may not see in the same, you know, to make up for missed time. You know, there was a funny story in The Hollywood Reporter today, which I found fascinating, which was basically suggesting that there hadn't been any official rules in China about windows and, and they've been trying some VOD experiments. But a lot of the countries around the world are behind the U.S. in terms of VOD adoption. And it's a much smaller part of 
of the overall pie. And so China is actually going to support theaters now <laughs> because it's the best way for everybody to make their money back. And, uh, and, and that's a fascinating wrinkle on, on the issue that's going on around the world. In I China, wish our country was as supportive of film as some of the other countries are. Yeah, well, China outpaced the U.S. in terms of number of theaters just a couple of years ago. So that, it's that's the second high. biggest box office in the world. Right. So they're, they're, they may catch up with us now. <laughs> they may. And then they're, they're, they're on the one hand in our future, but at the same time, they, they are, I think, much more aggressive about sort of these imperatives than, than, than we are. A government so, owned industry is a fact. Yeah. Unless, <laughs> unless fact, we have yeah. dictatorship, I don't see Hollywood necessarily reaching that. I don't level. think Trump's taking over Hollywood quite yet. He would love it though, I'm sure. Um, it often feels like he, he has. Um, before we go to questions, and I do want to tell people if, you, if you're watching this uh, in Zoom, you can submit questions in the little Q&A thing. And if you're watching this on Facebook, you can submit questions there and we'll, we'll try to get to as many as we can. Let's circle back on the fall festivals question because this is this ongoing ambiguous uh, situation that I, nobody seems to have the same answer to. The, fest, the fall festivals themselves, uh, to the extent that they are addressing these things publicly, have been doing it in what, what seems to me like kind of a shruggish sense that there's no real way to know what's going to be possible. So they have to have different contingency plans. Some people think that the most likely festival to happen this fall is Telluride. Others think there's no way in hell Telluride is going to happen. I, I think that all of these festivals will quote unquote happen, but what that looks like is going to be completely different. As I said, when the last time we did the live thing, I'm happy to be on the front lines. I'll go to Telluride. I'll, you know, I'll do all these things if they're happening. But it feels to me like we may be looking at some very specific kind of local identity for all of these festivals. And um, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm curious to see how they fight to have the currency that they've had in the past, because obviously Telluride is going to want to have a place at the table when it comes to Oscar buzz and launching big fall movies. I mean, what are you hearing on that front? Well, I think Eric, you and I are both talking to the same people. And if, if we talk to the people who are running those festivals, they're gonna say that they're gonna do them and they're gonna do them in the way that they possibly can. Um, I mean, it was interesting on the call, the La Pisa call, how many people didn't believe that some of these things could possibly happen. I agree with you. They're going to be local. Um, I think if Telluride gets those charters out of LA and New York, they're going to find some people to, to go there if they feel safe at that point in time. And I don't think I'm going to be one of them. I mean, I find it hard to imagine sharing a house with my friends, which is what I usually do in Telluride, um, or getting on, we talked about this, I, I, getting on the gondola with somebody. I mean, I, it's you not going to happen. It's go not going to happen. <laughs> but I can see them having a small festival, branding the titles Telluride, having that curatorial uh, impact, and the rest of us watching the films wherever we happen to be and timing them. Um, there's a lot more... Um, figuring out how to give people screenings at the same time and, and getting the reviews up under embargo and all that stuff. And I think it'll work. Right. I think the, the challenge obviously is messaging because what you don't want to say is that this, this is now what we have become. Nobody wants to say, everybody wants it, wants to, whatever happens, it's different to feel temporary because even if festivals aren't going to look the same as what they used to look, like to, to do something that's like mostly virtual, uh, it, it makes it harder to, to, to kind of, you know, validate the network of festivals in different places. 
in the way that we have before because they we're, we're going to all- make the best of it and we're going to do the best we can and the oscars are going to do the best they can i also don't buy into the idea that the oscars are not going to happen no, I, I think there will be some movies opening i think there will be some fall box office i think there will be some kind of award season it'll all be very weird and we have to assume that hopefully a year from now we can go back to the to the way it used to be there's no guarantees of that but that's Most what we can hope for most pandemics last 12 to 18 months, right? I mean, it, yep. even if we have none of us uh, in human history lived through something like this, it is not a completely unprecedented event for humanity. It's just that we have a different kind of world that we're living in right now. So it's, it, to me, it seems mostly a question of, okay, so, so what is our temporary solution and how can we start to plan for what things will be like on the other side of all this? And if all these things we start with the, the assumption that all these things have to happen in some form. Then we start to, to see uh, what the future looks like as opposed to assuming that they aren't happening in any, tra- I mean, I would even argue that South by Southwest, which canceled, didn't really cancel because it ended up having a, a, an identity that lasted much longer than South by would have had. So on some level, we're already starting to see, you know, the way in which festivals can kind of evolve past, what we're going, what we're going through by by just being as nimble as, as they possibly can. So, so just in the in the general world, um, by the way, uh, this is my my Snowpiercer. Uh, let's see if I can get it to show up. My Snowpiercer invitation for the premiere tonight. You know, with a long list of instructions and and people are uh, you know publicists and junketeers and all the people that are trying to get their stuff out there, they're doing what they got to do. And festivals are going to do the same thing. And filmmakers are going to do the same thing. It'll all get done. Oh, yeah. I, lo- I, I won't say I love, but, I, but I'm, I'm totally fine with going to virtual events. I mean, we're at one right now. So clearly there is viability to that sort of thing. And uh, we'll see how that keeps going. So let's, let's take some questions. Yeah. I, I want to start with one that came in from Facebook where uh, someone posted asking, should Can release a list of films they would have selected so that they get some buzz before the theaters open? So they, they are. They doing are. That. What we know. Not the whole we, list. Yeah, a, a partial be, list. Because some of these films are going to go into uh, 2021. And so if, you, if you're opting to do that, they're not going to say you're part of the selection. But it is a fascinating question of what that even means. You know, saying you announce the films and creating that brand, do the other festivals have a say in it? You're not ruining their premiere status because you're not screening them. Right, right. What is it that you're doing for them exactly? You're so Wes people- Anderson's movie, which, you know, is going to, The French Dispatch will open presumably in October with a can laurel on it. Right. So the, laure- the laurels will end up having a different kind of currency. And, uh, you know, something like Soul will have it, the Pixar movie. Here's an interesting question from Christopher Huken, who asks, uh, how do you think A24 will proceed with First Cow? And are you surprised that Focus has kept never rarely, sometimes always at a very high digital price point of 1999? Well, that's a standard um, premium VOD price point. So it's an interesting question, but if you make it cheaper, maybe more people would be willing to watch something like that. But at the same time, it becomes a real, you know, it's a, it's a challenge because a movie like that, it's, it's hard to get people to watch it in the first place. 20 bucks is a lot of money. 
So you know, some people are waiting, they're learning, they're figuring out that the premium VOD will last for a while and all these different distributors, especially Universal, which is very gung-ho about PVOD, they're, they're, they're playing with how long they can hold on to the big price point before they lower the price. And consumers are figuring out they should wait and get it when it's cheaper. I have a question from Joseph Hernandez who asks, do you expect the online Marche to be a robust market with lots of new titles and activity, or can you foresee any reasons why companies might not want to participate? Well, I could see a lot of reasons why you wouldn't want to participate because if you're looking to sell a movie off a festival buzz, this is not the way to do it. But it seems to me like there are a lot of people who are going to be, a lot of people are getting accredited for the Marche in in June and, and will be trying to see what their options are. It seems likely that the kinds of films that will be a part of the market are films that, as you and I have both heard this, are, are not going to be traditional festival films. I think we were fantasizing that some of the Cannes titles that we would have watched in Cannes at the Palais, you know, those, those would have been in the market. And it sounds like that's not going to be the case. So the, it's more likely that uh, buyers will look at those films in a different setting um, on their own. Here's, I love this question. This comes from Randy Matthews, and um, it's something I, I was not aware of, where he says, have you heard about this plan in South Korea to reopen movie theaters with AI robots, automated kiosks, and mobile app services, so they no longer need a human staff to reserve, pick up, or scan their tickets? Snack bars have been replaced with LED-controlled pickup boxes, which deliver food items ordered through this app. Could this ever happen in the U.S.? I actually listened to this webinar yesterday where they were fantasizing about automating all this stuff and it would be um, a new uh, bridge too far. We'll see. We'll see how far they can get with it. Yeah. I mean, I think to me, it's, it's expensive. Like, it's, it, and it's just, uh, it's, there are so many ways that th these kinds of protocols can go wrong in terms of when you design something like this, it has to be tested. You know, we, if, if something's not market ready, from a tech standpoint, you can't just like rush it out there. One of the weird things that they're doing is they're measuring when there's an inclined seat, how far away it is from other seats. I mean, it's mind boggling what they're measuring and how they're figuring this stuff out. So there's a, another question uh, here in Zoom from Joe Betty, who's asking, uh, do you have any prediction about the WGA disagreements and, and the lawsuit with the agents in the studios? Well, that definitely feels like a question for you, Anne. <laughs> you know, a lot of the smaller agencies have signed up and the writers uh, are getting represented by them. And what's going to happen with the top three agencies, uh, the ones that the, the Writers Guild really has all the problems with, the ones that do the packaging is a big, big question because they're the ones that are also over leveraged like William Morris Endeavor and, and they they really have um, problems. They're laying people off, they're furloughing people, they're cutting people's salaries. Um, a lot of their business is, is the event business, the sports, um, the arenas. I don't know how they're going to come back um, and uh, I think in a, in a, they're going to need the writers, they're going to need to have those clients. So yeah. I'm curious to see how it gets resolved. I mean, one of the things that we have been hearing is there, there is more evidence than ever before that keeping people inside helps them get past writer's block because a lot of folks are saying they're getting writing done, screenplays are getting written, and that's one of the only aspects of the filmic art that you can easily do under these circumstances. 
So we and again, Eric and I are lucky to be employed as writers. Yes. <laughs> Our lives have not changed that much. No, but I, do, I think it's, it's possible. We could see, you know, it'd be interesting to talk to somebody like Franklin Leonard from the Blacklist if there's going to be a, an influx of, of you know, of great... Of course there is. There's, and and it, by the way, if you read the trades every day, you'll notice that there's a lot of deal-making going on, a lot of sales, a lot of projects. There's going to be demand for content. Again, uh, content... <laughs> Oh, there's gonna be uh, there's gonna be a drinking. demand for movies, pictures, films, TV, and all of these things are going to have to come back. So this is a great question from Shannon Moultrie in uh, Panama City. So so Shannon uh, says we were supposed to have the International Film Festival Panama in April, but it was delayed due to COVID, and they decided to change what was planned and launch some films online for the first time. Do you think festivals should have had this approach in the past? Really interesting questions. Most people are asking, should festivals do that? Should they have done it before? I, I don't think so. Having gone to the festivals that, that I've gone to, the experiences that I've had, because to me, there's an element of exclusivity that in the context of what we were coming from was only, you could only do on the ground. Once you have that online presence, I think it changes the nature of what you're actually doing. Uh, and, it, and it becomes less about uh, having an event on the, on the ground and more having this, you know, collective event. I do think that something that Sundance was doing recently with its Sundance USA project was kind of fascinating where you would have some Sundance films that would premiere at the festival and then at different art houses at the same time. I would love to see some more innovation along those lines. The idea of maybe opening up the festival a little bit more, but still keeping that element of exclusivity because it's, it's about building a foundation of word of mouth testing the waters, but not making something available everywhere all at once. I mean, you feel similar? I definitely think that uh, a lot of people in the, in the ecosystem that we've been talking about want to see how a movie plays, bottom line. And that's what festivals are all about. And it's about seeing a movie with an audience. So uh, here's, a, here's a good question from Sam Burgesson asks, um, for all the expected lack of new films and TV shows in 2021, do you think there will be a large emphasis on rediscovery, either of international works or older, perhaps previously overlooked films and TV? Uh, Netflix has seen this bump in popularity of earlier titles. Will there be some second wind effect of that bleeding into theaters or a major financial impact with the VOD market? So there's a lot to unpack there. But I think the per perhaps the easiest way to answer this is to say that uh, yes, there will be a larger emphasis on rediscovery. I actually think it's kind of exciting that there will be perhaps older films released into theaters in a way that they haven't been before in a wider sense, and that there is an interest in older films. We don't know how big that interest is, but it definitely seems anecdotally like people are watching older films. And so we might be entering a, an exciting period where people see the potential for older films in terms of the long-term financial impact on the BOD market. Well, that's, that's happening but we were already heading that way anyway. So it it's all a question of acceleration yeah. on the VOD side. Um, but they're also learning what the numbers really are. And I think that they're going to find out at the end of the day that theaters return bigger numbers, assuming that they continue to exist. Um, the, the other question of uh, Criterion is doing incredibly well. They won't tell us what the numbers are, but the numbers are way, way, way up. Yeah. So anybody right. who loves classic films should definitely uh, check into Criterion because that's yeah, where a lot of the good ones are. Look, it's it's a hundred bucks for a year, which you know some people can afford more than others. But if you think about these things as advocacy, 
then I think it, you're moving in the right direction. I mean, Criterion is, is a relatively small outfit that is doing some really important work. It's, it's very different from the profit motive of some of the bigger streamers, some of whom I, I have a lot of respect for, but I do think that if you're gonna open your pocket for a service, that doing it in that context, in, in, in it actually is, is a sort of a vote of, of support. So um, before we go, uh, really good question from Everett Gilpin, who's asking us, do you think prices on movie tickets will go down once theaters open up to convince uh, more theaters to, to more people to go to theaters? During the repertory phase, I definitely think so. There, uh, uh, some of the theaters that opened in San Antonio were charging $5.99. Um, so I think that is going to be uh, a question mark going forward uh, to get people back in there. They're going to have to lower the price, especially Here. if it's not new product. On um, the opening day for uh, Unhinged, I think they'll probably charge full price. Right. But then it is this real question of like, do you want to spend, you know, 15, 20 bucks? Do you just want to watch? take your life in your hands to watch <laughs> Russell Crowe lose his shit on film? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> this is uh, apparently the most important question of film culture this summer, so we shall see. So last question from Emily Lou Aldrich is asking, can we still make a toast to Can? Our friend Emily is always welcome to toast Can with us. We'll keep it going all week. Virtual uh, but, toast, here you go. <laughs> I, it's a little too early for us with the rosé, but uh, we'll keep it going. Can keep it going for 10 days. So uh, even if people don't want to hear that nostalgia and that that wistfulness that comes from those of us who love going to that festival, it is very much still with us and we'll continue celebrating can um, for as long as we possibly can. And by the way, it's not dead yet. So hopefully we'll get to toast in person too. Well, thanks everybody for tuning in. Um, and anything else to add before we call it a day? Abiento, Eric. I'll see you on the Quasette. Thanks again, everybody for being here and, and we'll see you at the next one. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.